You're listening to No Borders Media. In this audio dispatch, on October 31st, 2018, we speak with two organizers of the Bannon from Toronto Unwelcoming Committee who are attempting to protest, disrupt, and shut down this Friday's Monk Debate event in downtown Toronto, which is featuring right-wing neoliberal David Frum and right-wing white nationalist Stephen Bannon in a so-called debate. Charmaine Khan of Normal's Legal Toronto and Rachel Small of the Mining and Justice Solidarity Network and the Council of Canadians address the arguments in favour of a vigorous campaign of opposition and deplatforming of the active enablers of far-right racism, particularly Trump ideologue Steve Bannon. We also discuss together strategies and tactics of resistance to the rise of the far-right and the normalization of the politics of hate and blame. Let's go to that discussion with Charmaine and Rachel right now. I'm speaking with Charmaine Khan and Rachel Small. Charmaine and Rachel are both involved with the Bannon-Trump Toronto Welcoming Committee. It's not really a welcoming committee. <laughs> They're trying to protest and potentially shut down an upcoming debate this Friday in Toronto between David Frum, the neoliberal, and Steve Bannon, the white nationalist. Charmaine is also part of No One Is Legal in Toronto, and Rachel is part of the Mining and Justice Solidarity Network and the Council of Canadians. Charmaine and Rachel, welcome to No Borders Media. Hi. Hi, it's, thanks for having us. Yeah, it's great to have you. I'm sure things are a bit hectic for both of you as media spokes for uh, the upcoming protest, especially since uh, there's a stated goal of, of trying to get the event shut down, either through pressure or through protest. And uh, I'm just wondering if either one of you can just sort of set the stage for us. What's this event that's coming up? It's called the Monk Debates. They're kind of a a well-known, prestigious series of debates that happen once a year, affiliated with the Monk Institute at the University of Toronto. Tell us more about what's happening this Friday, who's speaking, and why folks in Toronto have have gotten mobilized. This is Rachel here. Um, So as you highlighted, uh, the Monk debates are a big deal here in Toronto. They always happen at Roy Thompson Hall, which seats over 2,600 people. And they're always kind of right-wing debates that are, of course, funded through Peter Monk's legacy, um, through his foundation. They're not technically directly connected to the Monk School of Global Affairs at U of T, but there's a lot of institutions that'll all have Peter Monk's name on them in uh, in Toronto. And uh, again, all have their money based on the fortune that he made uh, through the mining company Barrick Gold, which is an infamous uh, company for human rights abuses and environmental abuses around the world. Uh, this Monk debate coming up in just two days is has caught a lot more people's attention because, as mentioned, it's Steve Bannon and David Frum who are supposedly going to be uh, debating each other. Um, and the coalition came together uh, with the basic premise of no way are we letting these two people speak in our city. And Steve Bannon, especially as a white supremacist, leader as some would say the spokesperson or the poster boy of the white supremacist movement globally Uh, we're not going to let him in in our city to recruit more people to his cause Charmaine maybe tell us more about who David Frum and Steve Bannon are Um, I guess people who follow politics will know these names because they're they're really well-known figures on the general right although they're ideological enemies on some issues tell us more about who the fuck uh, Steve Bannon and uh, and David Frum Mm -hmm. are yeah, well, um, what's really funny about this debate is that David Frum, 
um, you know, in 2001 was actually seen as a very, very conservative right person. Um, he um, He's actually, you know, comes from a legacy of the rich in Canada. Uh, he's from Toronto. Um, people might have read his mother as a columnist, Barbara Frum. But he became the speechwriter for George Bush and, um, um, and actually became one of the proponents um, you know, the propagandists for the Iraq War in 2001, supported the Iraq War, um, you know, until it became a complete failure. Then he did a small, you know, turnaround. But the term axis of evil is actually something he coined. And, um, you know, it's seen as, um, you know, very much in uh, with the main architects of the Iraq War, including, I mean, when you're a speechwriter and a propagandist, you're also peddling the lies that um, they justified in invading Iraq, which is now seen as, um, you know, just the legacy of that humanitarian disaster is still with us. You know, like um, um, now as people talk about like ISIS and terrorism, um, that's that's all a legacy from what happened uh, when he was working in George with George Bush. Now he's seen as this kind of moderate uh, conservative. He would maybe even be seen as like a conservative Democrat now because of how much to the right things have gotten um, in, uh, I don't know, in U.S. political culture, our political culture, I don't know. So he is um, setting up to be the, um, the more, I'm using air quotes, liberal um, um, opponent uh, to Steve Bannon. And um, Steve Bannon is, um, you know, infamous, infamously known right now as, you know, he was Trump's advisor, he helped Trump get elected. Um, he really believes in building um, a right-wing grassroots. He has really been inspired by actually leftist grassroots organizing and has kind of used those methods, like through gaming and other forms, um, to build a right-wing grassroots um, that has that basically got Trump elected. And um, as Rachel said, he is the poster of white supremacy, but now that he's out of a job, his main goal is actually spreading what he calls economic nationalism, which is actually just a you know this um, very coded word for um, you know um, you know fortified borders, um, intense national sovereignty, and basically um, it's a white nationalism is what he is talking about. And he has promised to spend you know um, a lot of his time in Europe, um, and he has made friends with people like Orban. In, um, in Hungary, and has also, um, you know, met with uh, government states people from Italy and Czech Republic, um, and he wants to spend most of his time trying to get two-thirds of um, nationalists being elected to the European Parliament. He feels that Europe needs to return to its glory days, um, you know, fighting the Muslim hordes, you know, back during the... Um, you know, back, back hundreds of years ago, um, and he wants to create a fortress Europe um, back to that original... Um, role where it kept Muslim immigrants at bay. Um, and so that's basically his goal right now is to go around around the world um, seeking um, an audience and talking about populism and economic nationalism, uh, which are definitely code words. Um, and um, because he got kicked off of the, um, you know, the New Yorker festival, the Writers' Festival, um, which is around this time, he is now coming to Toronto to debate um, the monk uh, sense or monk people, debate people, invited him to debate David from uh, this Friday. With this debate, we have a situation where the person who will be arguing the anti-racist side is David Frum, and the person who will be arguing uh, against the economic order 
sort of the neoliberal order of the World Trade Organization and NAFTA and the rest of it is, is Steve Bannon. So it's, it is kind of pathetic. But why does that mean this debate has to be shut down? Why can't that debate just, just happen and we can just ignore it? I mean, I don't think there is an anti-racist side to this debate. I think we have two different types of racists who in theory are going to debate each other and push forward different ideas. Maybe we have more of an old school racist than David Frum, and maybe we have someone with quote-unquote new populist ideas about how to bring forth their racist agenda in Steve Bannon. I think it's important to recognize that in general, we don't oppose these people because of what they say, we oppose them because of what we do. And I think we need to be honest about how this works. Bannon's not coming to Toronto to debate. He, he, he's thrilled, I think, to have an invitation to an event like this because it helps him legitimize his views, which are really extreme, overtly um, white supremacist views as part of our political uh, spectrum. Um, and in Toronto right now, I think is an especially obvious moment where we see the impacts of these kinds of views. Um, We just in the past month saw an attempted burning down of a hotel in Toronto that has been housing refugees. Um, The overt Nazi sympathizer Faith Goldie came in third place in the mayoral election in Toronto. We're sort of seeing who is being empowered by the likes of Steve Bannon. And, And this is not a matter of, of hearing him out. Um, frankly, even if we wanted to censor Bannon, we, we couldn't. He owns a media empire. It's very easy to access his views and his perspectives on things. What we're not going to do is let him come here and recruit more people to his movement. Charmaine, did you want to add anything? Yeah. Um, well, I wanted to say, I mean, this is sort of um, um, been the challenge, I think, for um, uh, when we kind of have um, a no-platform la- no politics come across a more liberal politics. So the main question we get is, in a liberal democracy, shouldn't we hear all sides? Um, it, it isn't the best way to defeat Bannon by hearing him out. And what I've been saying is that, um, like Rachel said, he's had plenty of avenues. Um, he's an incredibly popular person. He's been giving a lot of um, airtime on mainstream media uh, to talk about um, talk about that. One thing I forgot to mention in my introduction of Bannon is that he is starting what he what is called the movement, um, which is basically an international grassroots uh, neo-Nazi movement, you know, um, to help build a populist response um, to um, white nationalism and, um, and his, his nationalist politics. So um, why we oppose this, and I just hate the word debate, but um, why we oppose this event um, is because of the harm that his politics, his kind of politics, bring to the lives of, you know, um, the people that it attacks. Um, and that's very real, you know, and, um, um, and, and I, we only have to like, and I, I know it might seem simple to say, I'm not blaming him for any of the racist attacks that have happened, but there are direct links that with his involvement in Trump being elected, um, there has been a rise in hate crimes. Those are direct links that like the most liberal of, you know, hate crime watcher organizations have made. Um, people feel more emboldened. They are finding community and he's building that community to um, offer a sense of protection and validation for people who want to commit those acts of violence against people. So we are saying that his words actually cause real harm. They embolden neo-Nazis. They give them confidence. 
And that confidence turns into violence. And so one thing we asked at our press conference yesterday was how many more people have to die before, before people, like all people, reject this kind of politics and say, no, we don't want it to happen here in Toronto. Um, so that is why we are opposed to the event, because it does cause real hate and real violence to people. Um, it's not just like, you know, um, um, this being, you know, we've been accused of being very oversensitive and snowflakey, and we're trying to draw links of his influence on actual violence on marginalized communities. I want to ask uh, one more question on on the tactic of of trying to deplatform Bannon and from at this event, and then we can get on to uh, talking more about opposing the rise of the far right more generally. So I guess uh, one argument is that. Like, when do we decide to deplatform? And so say, take someone like Faith Goldie, someone who's repeated the 14 words, who appeared on the Daily Stormer podcast. There is a clear understanding that someone like her is sympathetic to neo-Nazis and white supremacy. Bannon denies that. Uh, Bannon, in his, in his speeches uh, on this tour that he's going on, uh, talks about economic nationalism, criticizes the Davos elite, talks about how black unemployment, Hispanic unemployment is less. He wants to open up a debate about immigration and, and all of that. So is it fair to describe him as a white supremacist? And is there also the possibility that, that, that some argue that this, this is something that he actually craves and wants and helps to, um, helps to bring more popularity to his ideas, not the tactic of deplatforming, but specifically deplatforming him or trying to deplatform him? So I think I think Steve Bannon is a really dangerous person because of his influence on policy. I mean, um, yes, Faith Goldie um, and subscribe to like like direct neo-Nazi links, um, and she was a marginal candidate. Even though she got third, there was like three in the bit percent. Uh, but Steve Bannon has been in positions of power, and we should uh, really interrogate what he what the, the harm he has caused while he has been in power. Um, which includes um, um, archi- or the architecture of the so-called Muslim ban, where um, just um, you know, where people from Muslim-majority countries were outright banned from entering the United States, as well as ending um, the DACA program in the United States, which has seen million pe- millions of people deported, um, and his support for things like the wall um, and things like that. So he's been in a position of power, um, and it has uh, caused a great deal of, of harm. Now, it's not just in the United States. Now we see him shaking hands with people like Orban. Orban, who has made it illegal for anyone in Hungary to provide any services um, to anyone without status in Hungary. So if you provide legal information, if you provide um, any kind of social services, um, if you have any propaganda that says, come to Hungary to any immigrants, you could be fined um, or even put in jail. So that's, that's the company he is keeping um, as, as he is seeking power. And his um, sense of power has essentially worked with Trump, um, and unfortunately, I think it is gaining traction in Europe. So um, I'm, I'm very cynical that people feel that Biden has to, like, you know, say a racist slur or, like, you know, shake hands with Faith Goldie uh, for, for people to take him seriously, because um, I think that a lot of um, people, like, more liberal than us um, in, in the States um, have a lot of fear of Steve Bannon and have refused you know, um, like the um, the leader in Scotland, he is no radical. He's not a deplatformist by any means, but he sees the danger. Um, you know, the New Yorker, they're not like a anarchist publication, um, but they canceled him because of liberal people who were like, we cannot share the same stage as a, as a hateful person. So I think that we need to not only just go after 
um, you know, um, fascists who ascribe to like a very like, extreme, um, you know, form of politics. I think we also need to put our sights on the people who are actually reaching power. And I feel the 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 um, the disconnect with that, like people accept people like Steve Bannon because you know he doesn't say that, is that he's actually hiring his true politics. You know, obviously he's not going to like go on Stormfront and like you know recruit from there. Um, but he is trying to make his politics more acceptable and more mainstream, and that's what's more scary than people like Faith Goldie. Rachel, did you want to add anything? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think in some ways uh, you could say that he's been maybe smarter about exactly how he toes that line or what exact line he crosses so that he won't um, overtly say certain white supremacist or certain neo-Nazi things. That said, it, the second you dig a little bit on him, you do find a lot. I mean, his his ex-wife under oath in a court gave a whole bunch of documentation of anti-Semitic stuff that he said, like explicitly saying, I don't like Jews. Um, he There was a, a great expose, I think a year ago now, that revealed how the relationship between Breitbart, his, his news outlet, and the neo-Nazi and white nationalist groups that use it. And the expose revealed that the employees at Breitbart were actively working to develop and advance an agenda that embraced those groups and their tactics and encouraged them to use their, their site in various ways. So it wasn't kind of this passive relationship. Oh, what do you know? Unfortunately, there happened to be neo-Nazis using our materials or, or engaging with our platform. Um, I mean, the, the very first people who congratulated him and, and, and I guess by proxy Trump, when he was given the position of strategist for Trump, were leaders of the KKK, um, the chairman of the American Nazi Party. Um, I, I, I don't think that it's actually that, that hidden, his overt anti-Semitism, his overt white supremacy. And just, if I remember correctly, just last month, I think he told a gathering of a French racist um, let them call you racist. You should wear it as a badge of honor. So I think he's, he's yeah. being yeah. quite overt. Yeah, he was speaking to the Front National and says if they denounce you as a xenophobe, uh, wear it as a badge of honor. If you denounce you as a racist, wear it as a badge. He has an excuse for why. But and just to add to add to some of those examples from the past, um, when um, Milo, Milo, that um, <laughs> that uh, that Islamophobe and misogynist. Uh, uh, when he revealed some emails when he got into a, f- a fight with Breitbart, uh, it was pretty clear that Bannon, when he was editor of Breitbart, was overtly encouraging Milo just to stick to bread and butter Islamophobia. That um, Milo wanted to branch out and write about other stuff, and he's like, no, no, stick to just this incitement against Muslims. So um, that stuff is pretty clear. Um, so let's let's maybe get into how how we oppose this. I mean, there's the protest, of course, but maybe more generally because whatever happens on Friday, this is um, sort of a uh, a repositioning of, of global politics that's, depending on who you talk to, been emerging for decades or over the last few years, or maybe it's always been the case and just more apparent. But um, Bannon has articulated, a, a, you know, and quite quite well, I mean, I hate to fucking admit it, but like he's in debates with the Financial Times and, 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 and The Economist and is just really standing his ground about confronting neoliberalism and this, this idea of, of nationalism, economic nationalism, what I would call white nationalism ultimately because it's crucially linked to uh, ending uh, an open immigration system. So um, I'm just wondering your thoughts about fitting in the upcoming protests and all the mobilizing you've done and clearly the research you've done into who, who someone like Bannon and, and, and 
the movements he represents is, um, and the strategies we need to confront this. So um, I know, Charmin, you've jumped into that Bannon rabbit hole, maybe a bit like me, listen to all these debates in full and listen to this person. And he, they, he, he and the movements he's, he's close to are making a clear pitch to working class people on economic grounds and on racial grounds, uh, sometimes coded and sometimes not so coded. Um, so uh, how, how are we to adjust to this, this reality? I mean, I mean, I guess my, my strategy has been to oppose that um, on as many levels as we can. You know, um, like, we didn't want a simple protest to be like, we don't like this guy. We don't like this debate. Uh, we don't want our city resources to, our community resources. And Roy Thompson Hall is, a, you know, it's part of U of T. This is a public space. And uh, we don't want our public spaces to be used um, for him to promote these ideas because um, the like I was just in Hungary a few weeks ago and the thing is is like once fascists come to power um, that's when like that's when struggle is hard like this main activist there um, he has changed the constitution um, he is canceling like gender studies programs he's made it illegal um, to provide services to migrants things that you know we hear maybe take for granted. And um, for all this talk of free speech, once the fascists come in power, there is no free speech for anything, um, for like movements or the left. Um, and so we need to stop it before it gets into power. And Steve Bannon, I find him, um, well, we need to stop him because that is his end goal. That's, you know, he wants, his eye on the prize is for nationalists to gain power. He's probably very happy with Doug Ford's uh, election here, um, just like in Quebec. And so he wants those kind of politics to be um, spreading. So, um, yeah, we need to stop it on all levels. So, uh, I mean, that even means, like, physically stopping them from speaking. Um, but I also, also believe that we need to provide a counter to what he's offering. It is true that he is offering this analysis where people who are facing, you know, economic hardship, um, they, are telling him, they are telling them to blame this kind of what, what he calls globalist um, you know, um, you know, globalism of economy and immigrants and things like that. Um, and we need to articulate, um, you know, a, a different form of politics, which is internationalism. You know, we need to link people's hardship to this is exploitation around the world, you know, and we need to link that to, um, you know, your security is not based on the border at all. You know, it's an economic system that we live under. Um, and, you know, the role of, um, you know, immigration and more open borders or open borders actually helps our communities thrive and be healthy. Um, so definitely, I don't think it's just, um, you know, we need to like um, throw down, stop this protest, yell at some, you know, neo must come up. I think, do think that we need to start articulating a different politics to counter that um, because what he is saying has um, really caught on, not to everyone by any means, you know, but, um, but um, enough to, uh, enough to like, you know, gain this kind of like, you know, young male um, following um, that's very alarming. And so I think we do need to, you know, really think about um, what kind of politics we put forward to counter his. Rachel, did you want to add anything? Yeah, I, I agree with everything Charmaine said. Um, I think the only thing I would come back to is, is yes, uh, we're not going to win this just with protests. But also, I think there is huge value in the moments when you do win on the streets that way. And we've seen that recently in Toronto. We've seen that recently in Montreal, moments where there were these striking victories, um, in some cases of anti-fascist, of anti-racist, of perhaps 
the groups coming together um, against these hate groups. And I think that can be a bigger blow than we sometimes give ourselves credit for to these hate groups. I think there is something really powerful about uh, shutting them down at the moments where they are building pride, where they are trying to show off, frankly. Like, I think some of these leaders' egos are more fragile than we think. And I don't want to oversimplify what this whole struggle looks like, but I also don't want to underplay um, how important these moments can be. I'm going to jump in a bit myself and sort of give some thoughts on, on the question I just asked and definitely agree with what you both said. I guess one thought I have is, you know, back back when the when there was the fall of the Berlin Wall, there was this famous declaration of the end of ideology or the end of history. And I think what we're seeing is a return of ideology. And those of us on the left need to start articulating our ideology just much more openly, not in some sort of unthinking sectarian way, but like sort of embrace our leftism. And I know, Charmaine, you commented on this recently when Bolsonaro was elected about that includes internationalism. <laughs> that includes talking about socializing the economy because part of part of Bannon's pitch is to people that have grievant, like legitimate grievances, not against migrants, which is this excuse, or Muslims or Jews or what have you, but for this really fucked up neoliberal model that's been imposed on us and it's taken for granted over the last 30, 40 years. So, um, and we see, like, <clears throat> I'm not into electoralism a lot, but we see when certain politicians do actually make a pitch to some of the ideology, you know, whether it's socialized health care, uh, whether it's taking on corporate elites like so Sanders or Corbyn or whatever, there is an appeal to that, uh, whether that means free transport or what have you, like just articulating our vision of change. Now, there's a lot to talk to in terms of tactics and strategies, but in terms of tactics, that means taking on these ideological enemies and Bannon and Frum are both that including Monk, <laughs> uh, the Monk debates. And so that brings me to my next question, which I guess is more for you, Rachel, but Charmaine, feel free to chime in. Is there any expectation that the Monk debates will respond to any sort of public pressure? The, uh, the Monk debates, as, as both of you have already pointed out, is, is based on the legacy of Peter Monk, of Barrick Gold. Um, and this, uh, his legacy is based, uh, thrived off of taking advantage of authoritarian right-wing regimes all over the world that provided access to... to to mining exploitation all over the world, which is what they're expecting in Brazil now. Uh, so what can we expect from the monk debates? And I'm just wondering if one of you can get more of a critical view of, of, of that, that legacy of these monk debates. Sure. Um, yeah, I think that the monk debate is in some ways less uh, maybe vulnerable to, to criticism or to, to blowback than, than some of the other places where Bannon's talks have been canceled. Um, I mean... Monk's fortune is already at their disposal and they're not uh, subject to, yeah, like losing subscribers like a media outlet would be, for example. Um, Peter Monk's legacy, I mean, I, I don't really want to speculate on what he would say if he was here today. He's dead. Um, but he was famous, a famous racist himself. He famously said that rape was a cultural habit in places where he mined, and therefore his mining security couldn't be held accountable for rapes that were committed of people protesting his mines. Like his, his legacy is one that has always upheld racism and white supremacy. So in many ways, this is fitting. Um, I would say, though, that I think the debate organizers are feeling the pressure. One of the responses that they sent to me around why they're not canceling the debate is, and I quote, 
what is clear is that Steve Bannon has platforms, many of them where he has never challenged in any way about his ideas. So the Monk debates are not giving him a platform. They, they are providing a platform for the first time his ideas will be challenged. I don't know what kind of defense that is. To me, it makes absolutely no sense. I think they're trying to say that David Frum, this fellow white guy, is the guy who's going to defend um, against his white supremacist platform. Just to say that they are kind of trying to put forward these defenses of why they're doing the debate in this way. I see that as a good sign um, that they are feeling the heat and that they, uh, yeah, may be feeling some accountability for the platform that they're giving him. One of the shocks of the last uh, week or so, or actually the last couple of weeks, because it was pretty clear he was going to win, is the election of an apologist for dictatorship, a, a homophobe, a misogynist, as the president of Brazil, somebody who's an out-and-out right-winger who's promising a return to dictatorship. It's increased uh, it's a clear escalation of violence against queer and trans folks, against black folks, against poor folks, against leftists all over Brazil. So sort of reinforces this trend, but I think it took a lot of us uh, by surprise a bit. But one way this has been reported by the Financial Times and even CBC is that this is a great economic opportunity. And I know that there's uh, connections between, well, we've already talked about the connections between mining companies in Canada and exploitation in places like Brazil, but also between Bannon and Bolsonaro in Brazil. So, uh, Rachel, maybe you could you could talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it was both shocking and also not at all surprising back in uh, August when it was overtly explained by Bolsonaro's son that Bannon has been extremely helpful to the campaign. I think he like directly listed types of help that Bannon gave, like internet support analysis and kind of went on, um, which confirms sort of the alarm that we've been raising in general about Bannon, that he is on this global mission to support um, far-right leaders, uh, leaders with strong fascist leanings to take control of the world's democracies, essentially. Um, and in Brazil, we've already since uh, Sunday seen a huge upswing in, in violence, um, schools being raided. Um, the MST, the Landless Workers Movement, has uh, seen huge attacks since Sunday. Um, and we also know that Bolsonaro has promised to open up the country, as you said, Jaggi, to all kinds of development, which will be of huge benefit to uh, Canadian companies and, uh, yeah, and, and I would argue to, to companies like Barrett Gold, representing Monk's legacy. This past Saturday, uh, the world learned about the Pittsburgh Synagogue massacre where 11 people who were in a Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh were were killed, shot and killed by a by an anti-Semite, a racist. And when you folks of the Bannon from Toronto Welcoming Committee or Unwelcoming Committee did your press conference on Tuesday, you you did reference that in terms of talking about what's ultimately at stake and the urgency here. So I'm wondering if both of you could could address uh, could address that and also how things went as you addressed the media uh, on Tuesday in terms of uh, putting out to the mainstream audience that this event on Friday should be shut down? Sure. Okay, well, um, yeah, so we, we put out a press release talking about, you know, from Toronto to Pittsburgh, you know, we need to stop hate and um, kind of ask how many we need to die. And this comes from a context, like, um, just a, I feel like I need to give context because 
Um, I think a lot of people were a little offended that we were linking this bad um, debate to what's happening in Pittsburgh. People just, I mean, not really, you know, heard of Bannon and um, known death of what he's about. It would be very confusing. And the thing is, the context was that just, you know, over a year ago, we um, we're we're still like, you know, I'm, I feel I'm still processing that massacre um, that happened in Quebec City at the mosque, you know, and how um, surprising it is. It's random. It's um, and yet it's um, kind of the same archetype of um, you know a white man who spends a lot of time reading right wing news, um, you know, for. Um, Alexander Bissonnette, who was a shooter of Quebec City, he spent a lot of time um, reading right-wing commentary. And the uh, top writer she read was Steve Bannon. Um, and then we have um, the shooter of the Pittsburgh synagogue, who spent a lot of time on this, um, I think it's called Gab Fest, or it's supposed to be a safe space for people who um, want to, like, just be hateful. Um, and so uh, we really need to make, we really wanted to expose that um, these ideas that Steve Bannon talks about causes harm, you know. So when he says that, you know, there are people coming to the border to take your job, um, the amount of fear-mongering and, um, you know, it does ignite hate in people, and people respond in hate um, in those ways. Not all the time. Like, I know these shootings can be very, um, um, are very isolated, um, but they also, um, you know, could lead to, People joining the Proud Boys, for example, who are seen as like the soldiers of Bannon's dream, even though he disassociates himself from that. Um, and so we really wanted to make clear that this is about life and death for many people in the communities, and that um, that these acts of violence all start with a form of um, hateful ideas that blame immigrants and other marginalized communities for economic strife. The shooter in Pittsburgh made it clear. Um, that he wanted to attack them because they were helping um, Muslim refugees uh, come to the United States and were seen as kind of like, um, you know, the, uh, the leaders of immigration um, or migrant, uh, migrants into the United States, like very like anti-Semitic um, and also anti-immigrant sentiments. And so um, um, these ideas, when they're emboldened, when they're normalized, make that violence almost you know, uh, permissible or um, um, encourage, encourages that kind of violence. So that's why we made that link. Um, we want to make it really clear that it is about the safety of our communities um, when Bannon speaks. And so um, in terms of the response by the media, I mean, um, I think we got, like, I don't know, I feel like people understood it. It's, it's always coming back to this really, really annoying debate about free speech, like, we're government actors who are trying to stand Steve Bannon. And what we're saying is actually this is a community response based on our own expression of free speech and free expression. So um, it's always going back to that debate. And I feel like that debate is really a straw man that really is um, leads us away from what, what, what truly we're in conflict with. So that's what I have to say about, yeah, the, the synagogue and the response. But um yeah, I really, I really hope that as we move forward fighting fascism, that we can somehow pivot this free speech debate because it is really a time waster, and I feel it really is, um, yeah, just kind of like this, um, it really masks the true issues that we're really trying to bring forth. Rachel, your, your final thoughts on this? 
so as Charmaine said, we've what we've seen with many of these uh, terrible, violent attacks um, is that when you look into what inspired or informed the analysis of the attackers, you end up finding, um, frankly, a lot of Steve Bannon's media, um, as well as some other popular uh, dark parts of the internet, I'll say. In terms of the attack at Efraim, the, the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, um, this was obviously primarily an anti-Semitic attack, an attack that uh, targeted and killed a number of Jews um, because they were Jewish. But people are also, of course, right to point out, and we should point out, that this particular synagogue was targeted because of their solidarity, because of their commitment to um, supporting all refugees and supporting other people who have been the victims of white supremacy. Um, what I've seen coming up more just in the past two days as we get more information about this attack is that there's also a really strong connection here in the attacker's mind between the migrant caravan that's been moving across Mexico and basically this xenophobic panic that has been coming up. Um, and it's not surprising that the outlet for that panic came out um, in targeting Jews, and in this case, Jews who helped to resettle refugees. Um, I think people are like to try to divide it. Oh, this is not connected to Ben because he's not anti-Semitic. He's just anti-immigration, or this is not connected to that. When what we know is that these attacks connect all of these issues, um, and our response is also about us all coming together and to call out hate against all of us, against any of us, as an attack on all of us. Um, and I will say that uh, this is the exact sort of attack that I, from a very young age, was warned about as a Jewish person. I mean, I did bomb drills and shooting drills in my elementary school uh, long before this became maybe more common in North American schools. So on one hand, this is completely, uh, this was completely expected, even as it was horrifying. Um, and just as anti-Black racism, um, colonial violence, um, like these are currents that run under waves of politics and are constantly ongoing and anti-Semitism fits into that picture as well. So I think to say that it's a stretch to connect this to Steve Bannon ignores the, the connections and the violence that we're facing. Rachel and Charmaine, uh, I really want to wish you well uh, this coming Friday. Um, as media spokes, you're sort of in the heat of it. I'm sure there's lots and lots of people involved with the organizing. One thing um, I, I often say in these organizing contexts is it really doesn't matter what happens. It's the process of the organizing because uh, you, along with all your comrades, are fucking trying <laughs> to do something. And as, as Charmaine pointed out earlier, it's not just some symbolic protest, an actual shutdown. And uh, Charmaine, you just referenced the Proud Boys. Um, there seems to be a clear understanding more and more that the people to be deplatformed and to be targeted is actually a lot larger than we think. It's not just the Daily Stormer and Faith Goldie. Uh, so the Proud Boys recently have been deplatformed off of all of social media, and I think eventually there'll be a, an understanding that uh, Bannon uh, is crucial to uh, to this nauseous, toxic politics that has, as as you both pointed out just now, uh, murderous consequences. So Rachel Small and Charmaine Khan, uh, members of the Bannon from Toronto Unwelcoming Committee, thanks for speaking on No Borders Media, and all the best to you on Friday as you try to shut this thing down. Thanks, Jiggy. Thank you.
you were just listening to No Borders Media Discussion featuring Charmaine Khan and Rachel Small of the Bannon from Toronto Unwelcoming Committee in anticipation of the upcoming protest this Friday, November 2nd to attempt to shut down an upcoming event featuring right-wing white nationalist Steve Bannon. No Borders Media is an autonomous left-wing media network. We share and create content that supports the struggles of communities and resistance with a focus on the self-determination struggles of indigenous peoples, migrants, refugees, and working-class people of color, all in the context of opposition to capitalism and colonialism. Some current focuses include migrant justice, resistance to borders, anti-fascism, and anarchism. We are in the early stages of our independent media project. To stay in touch, send us an email at nobordersmedianetwork at gmail.com or look for No Borders Media on Facebook, Twitter, and SoundCloud. Much more to come in the coming weeks and months.